0: Navigating Change: The podcast from Tybel Education. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here with Howard Tybel. Happy New Year, Howard! Happy New Year, Pete. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited about our conversation today. Uh, you have brought us something new and fantastic.
1: Something and someone.
0: Yes, indeed. And it kicks off our uh, a theme for the uh, opening part of our year 2019 uh, with a a distinguished. Guest, We are honored to have here today Anwar Majid is a professor of English at University of New England, but his titles and accomplishments reach far beyond the campus classroom. He also serves the institution as vice president for global affairs. He conceived and established the university's campus in Tangier and is the managing director of UNE Morocco. He's a seemingly inexhaustible contributor to publications ranging from relations between Islam and the West, culture and higher education. He joins us today for a conversation on one of our favorite subjects and a subject that forms the theme of the first part of 2019 for Navigating Change, Disruption. Anwar Majid,
2: welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Pete. Thank you, Howard.
1: Anwar and I met uh, from some work and a mutual connection, uh, one of his colleagues, Nicole Trufant, who oversees uh, is the business officer at University of New England. And she put the two of us in touch. And we've had a number of sessions and meetings. He actually even came out here. And we got a chance to walk around the Rocky Mountains and explore. And I think, Anwar, you bring a, a sense of how to be part of a culture, but also how to step back and really challenge the culture.
2: Basically, the way as I was thinking about this podcast, I began to reflect about my own itinerary and how I came to hold or embrace these kinds of ideas or how I've become the person that I seem to be. And I think it has to be grounded to some extent in my background in the humanities, it's a very ancient tradition that dates all the way back to ancient Greece and are coming through Rome and stuff. And it's basically a culture of of reflection, uh, of thinking, um, and writing and contemplation. And so, when you get thrust into any kind of industry and might and it's okay to call higher education a sort of industry absolutely and, and you begin to see uh, the behaviors of what happens in any other form of industry you know you know Camps and and tribes within higher education. There's a tribe of administrators. There's a tribe of faculty. Administrators have a particular, and there's the trustees on the other side too. They look at, and so there everybody begins to form a some some kind of prejudice towards the other. And, yes, and uh, and so in this world of prejudices, um, I kind of inhabit. I'm I sort of. Intersection or a kind of middle ground. I am. I have one foot in the faculty. I, I, I do administration. I pay attention to the discourse of, of trustees, and and so I began to see both a potential for growth, but also a tremendous lack of creative thinking, despite mm-hmm. the fact that the the the, the ongoing refrain in higher education now, at least for the last decade, has been that overused word of innovation.
1: Tribe's interesting. I think it's a great way of describing the groups we belong to because as part of being a tribe, there's an element of loyalty. And, and the loyalty ends up becoming what makes our tribe strong, but also insulates us from working with each other. Because I see it from the outside, and I come in and I attempt to provoke conversations about how are you working as administrators and academics, recognizing that there is a power dynamic about who controls what, who's responsible, who's accountable. The tension, when it works well, produces tremendous output. But the behaviors, as you said earlier, often lead to dysfunction and also suspicion and distrust. Part of calling this out is how we can navigate this. We have to be willing to call it out. So, so what's your sense about how this is showing up after the number of years you've been in education? Uh, this the whole nature of how we're working together. Is it getting better in your view? Is it getting more difficult?
2: We haven't been asking the right questions. For example, I sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't bother me to ask this question. Like say, I've asked it, I put I put this question to a, a, a number of people, including presidents and when people have this big concern about surviving into the future like an institution like everybody's worried about the economy but, but you know about the future of higher education how who's going to survive and who's not and my question would be well should you be in existence in the first place, you know. I mean, do we have to survive as are we? Do we want to survive as an institution just because we're an institution? Is there? Do we have a higher purpose to survive for? If it is the education of people and so on and so forth, then there may be other ways of thinking about providing a high quality education to American citizens, for example, instead of thinking about the, our narrow interest of surviving as an institution. But By asking this question, I know you see, if you ask this question, uh, people get a little rattled because, you know, it seems as if, you are going against the best interests of the institutions. Well, I am not because I want to clarify people's thinking about exactly what they mean by a mission and a vision for that mission.
1: What's, what's fascinating, Anwar, is that to be able to be in conversation with you demands that you rec- people recognize that the conversation is about really unpacking and discovering our commitment. It's not an attempt to dismantle. It's an attempt to deepen our commitment. Thank you. Right, yes. and most people hear it as you are challenging something, and you have this hidden agenda. Um, and I remember when Sweetbriar Sweet uh, was on the ropes, and uh, I heard an anecdote that the board chair said to the board before they declared that they were that they were closing that survival is not a mission. Yes. And that's a powerful statement. That in the absence of having a clear idea about where we're going to go, may, maybe we need to think differently about who we are and where we have to go. Uh, so, so, and 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 you're right. It rattles people uh, because we have different agendas. And and it also reveals, I would imagine, and you probably see this all the time, is whether or not you have the relationships with each other, and the, and the inherent trust to be able to have those conversations
2: it is really a question that applies to everything. I mean, it can not just to higher institutions of higher education, to businesses, even to to life itself. I mean, you know, the big questions. These are. This we exist. For, we exist. I, I would suppose. I would hope to ask these big questions to, to yeah. start with before we begin to to unpack uh, them and find solutions, so on. When I ask these questions, like for example, when I say, you know, should we exist, or should we? Why should we exist uh, for the next hundred years? Like like you just said, uh, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. In, I'm not. My goal is not to dismantle the in my institution, which I served for more than 27 years. Sure, but <laughs> but it, is, yeah. it is to help us think, to help us really think deeply about what it is that we are doing. And so if we have a, a very solid sense of our mission, which everybody thinks we do, then I think we can deliver uh, a better education. We can give students and the community a, a better quality Uh, sort of cultural, educational experience. And we all benefit from that. So it's really critical for me to have a very solid uh, idea of one's mission and vision. And the other thing that I think about a lot is the the administrative structure of universities. You know, the it hasn't changed. I don't know I don't know whether I mean you probably know better than I do in the last 50, 60, 70 years. It's administration on one side, faculty and then and then deans and chairs and stuff like that. And I wonder whether, like looking at that article by Francesca Gino we talked about about the rebel talent, uh whether we need to think of, you know a different structure that so would allow the university, maybe colleges, maybe some other structure that would be more efficient and more creative and more nimble in, in, in achieving both the, the educational and cultural mission and being successful at delivering them
1: yeah there's no question and you know the nature of the of the tribes that started to separate even more had a lot to do with over time the increasing sense of administration attempting you know as as these institutions started to grow in terms of the number of students and the research dollars and the competition over the last 50 years what ends up happening is they have to they have to manage this. So the bloat of administration, not in every case, but came out of a need to have to manage. And then you have on the academic side, you have the academic leadership recognizing that some of the conversation is shifting away from them. And the history really has been, if we go back far enough, that they really were the crafters and creators and the inventors of what was this education and from their perspective in some cases it feels hijacked by administration and there's this ongoing delicate dance between how do we work together to both honor this as a tradition that is is about taking a human being to the next level of what they need to become while recognizing this as a business and that tension is is more present than ever. You know and I, and you and I have talked about this other element because you talk about mission. You know, you and I have talked about well what really do if, as we think about students of the future, what is it that we need to be providing them with because more and more we recognize our cell phones, our computers, the ability to navigate knowledge is no longer confined to the walls of our institutions, to our textbooks, or even to our faculty. So if if this knowledge that is out there, and I say knowledge in terms of information, the amount of information we can get access to that we can learn from, how does a university need to shift in terms of what its real offer is? And I'm curious what your sense of that is as we've be- as knowledge has become so much more ubiquitous and we've gone from a history where it's about the stage on the stage and you read this material and then we hand you a certificate saying that you have developed the skills to enter the world. I think we're in a different place right now and our universities have not caught up with that.
2: That's right. And I think We have been, we have become passive participants in a in a culture that is being dominated, sometimes monstrously so, by the high tech industry. So, for example, in the current issue of Harper's Magazine, I just read an incredibly disturbing article by Fred Turner, uh, who is a who is a professor at one of the UC campuses and he's talking about the origins of silicon valley how it emerged out of the idealism of communes and which uh, and when they used to publish that the uh, whole earth catalog if you i don't know whether you remember that and which oh, which yeah. Steve Jobs treated as a bible and he compared it as a print version of google uh, way ahead of way ahead of time but so they came out of this culture of idealism and do-it-yourself kind of thing they wanted to create a progressive and a connected global community but then eventually this culture grew into the domineering and and uh, uh, now nowadays almost oppressive uh, the system that is that has forced the, the entire world into its into its uh, orbit and so now people are Trying to figure, trying to find to figure out ways to break away from it, to tame it, and so on and so forth. But what happened in the last couple of decades, in my estimation, is like we have developed, we have a culture of surfaces, where people are basically literally surfing uh, on, to- on over the surfaces, and we have uh, abandoned the the tr- the valuable tradition because tradition doesn't have to be necessarily bad of depth and profundity and and going back into history so we live in the in a culture of permanent present or presentism and you know that is being enhanced and abetted by twitter and social media and and so forth but the human the, the caliber and the quality of the human being living in this in this system uh, has changed, and, had, and I'm, I'm not so sure it has changed for the better. So the role of the university, it may well be, is to become the counterculture, so to speak, is to provide, because the university has always been the place where you could read and study things you would not otherwise have access to in the popular culture. At least that's how I used to present to, to my students. i did tell them, you come to my class and you read Moby Dick and you read... Uh, you know, some obscure French writer, because you would never have a chance to do so if you didn't come to college. The college gives you an opportunity to know about these things that the popular culture out there, even though there are exceptions, is not going probably to provide, and you would not be looking going to look for it. We know from experience now that. Google. even though the internet has made everything available, uh, most people are looking for lowbrow culture, cultural experiences. They're not looking for Shakespeare or for um, the, the class, you know, the great musicians of classical music, the great composers and so on. So the, the internet attracts, for the most part, people looking for a particular kind of cultural experience. There are exceptions. So I think the universities, in some ways, besides being teaching the practical and the subject uh, in the other areas of the humanities and social sciences, maybe they should start to think of themselves as a, a, a space where people are permitted to go against the prevailing trend. So what happens in the conversations among administrators and faculty is like we are absolutely... Um, we are helpless in the face of this onslaught of technology and the best we can do is adapt to it as fast as we can so that we may stay relevant going forward into yeah. the future
1: and what they mean which i think is antithetical to what you're saying is when they say adapt they mean they actually are also are, are trying to figure out how to adopt and in adopting they're they're potentially moving further away from the kind of exploration you're talking about I can't I can't get over this this sense. You know, you talk about
0: we we live in the culture of the permanent present. That is an, uh, just a perfectly positioned statement. And I, I I can't get over the the sense that not only I mean that that so defines what students, uh, you know, potential students are looking for in higher education, but also what leaders in higher education are bringing to work every day. How does this uh, culture of living in the permanent present impact How. They lead and the change they seek to make. You said something when we started that that may uh, sort of anchor this conversation, and it it felt like a cliffhanger when we first pressed record today uh, that you have trouble with the phrase best practices. Uh, and I wonder how that relates to this conversation. Can you give us a little insight?
2: Well, I mean, you go to a lot of meetings. As 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 you know, we go to a lot of meetings and we often hear about best practices. It's like the thing that is beyond argument, that beyond dispute. There's something out there called best practice. I don't know who designed it, who defined it. <laughs> 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 so, so, so now uh, we are supposed to do what they are doing. I was thinking of it once. Ironically, let's say, maybe I'll get up in the morning and I will say, well, uh, today I'm going to conduct my, my day or my life according to best practices. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <And> what, did, <laughs> what did that day look like, Kretel? <laughs> he didn't brush
2: his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe I would, today I'll try to be like Howard. That I would spend my right. entire
1: day. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, how, no, no, no. how did that go for you? That broke down probably really quickly. <laughs> that was a huge what mistake. I'm saying yeah. is,
2: what it, it, implicitly this notion of best practice teaches, or you know, basically. Yeah produces a mindset that is conformist, that we are supposed to all do the same thing, as if all the institutions and colleges and universities are cut from the same cloth. But each each university, each college has its own proper DNA. It's just what I said. It's like me, Anwar, getting up in the morning and asking myself, okay, today I'm gonna live my life according to best practices. So a university in England gets up, or Brown University, or Harvard, or whatever, they all have their own histories their own dna their own memories their own institutional realities and i think it is those that should define uh, our you know the the vision and the mission while while being confined within other systems which like accreditation systems or government funded systems and stuff like that but i think it's that kind of thinking that seems to come easy to administrators and at the expense of that non-conformity we talked about we're trying to talk about
0: well because it's the act of activity that is celebrated yeah Uh, yes right in large part when you bring that to the table as a as a, a you know department manager and say i've done something i've researched best practices in this field and now i've set the bar at exactly this much higher than where it was yesterday and it leads to a culture of sameness
1: yes the best practice mindset what what's behind people articulating that is a is a fear and a recognition that we really don't we really don't think we're doing something of value and maybe if we can get ourselves to a bar that we are at least doing something close to to another institution uh, rather than thinking for ourselves but that will that will elevate our capacity to do, you know, what are best practices for enrollment practices? What are best practices for facilities utilization? So I have no problem with people going out and saying, let's do a research trip and see what others are doing. But that's not what they do. They then look for something and they go, oh, that looks good. Let's imitate that and not ask the question, is that right for us? And is that bar is is that the bar we really should be striving for? Uh, another term that I like, that's a, a bit of a disruptive uh, uh, recognition, is instead of best practices, to think about it as next practices, because next practices speaks to this idea of it's not about. St- uh, taking that and imitating it it's about what should be the next practice and it it's not necessarily what everybody else is doing
2: absolutely you know I, I think you know the the notion i like the word creativity i like it more so than innovation because you know i mean you you constantly are uh, in a creative mood uh because it's because the challenges on the at, at least from the point of view of administration you know the challenges uh, never never stop coming at you in terms of but um ad, but it has to be it, this creativity has to be very mindful of the powerful impact and tr- and legacy of tradition and, yes. uh, and because tradition i mean the classics will always be the classics despite what, whatever Whatever people might say about them, it, there's a tradition that has that we've inherited that that has shaped entire generations and uh, of people and nations and so on. We need to be very mindful of that while we are thinking about the future. So it's a, uh, uh, and also along with that is the continuing and honest thinking about our our place on this earth and the planet and about what we mean by education and what is the purpose of our existence as an institution or even as a community.
1: You know, let's come back to conformity for a minute, because I think that your comments about best practices and your comment, Pete, is it leads to sameness. You know, one of the things we're going to share that you brought to me is this article, The Big Idea from a Harvard Business Review, Rebel Talent. And you know the subtitle here is if you want engaged employees, let them break rules and be themselves. And there's one small section in here, and I and I think Anwar, that's what you attempt to navigate in your career. And some people like it, some people don't. Uh, and and navigating that well is an art, right? It's it's an art to be able to pay attention to how far you really can push, and and. The underlying uh, need is to really have built trust that that the other, that is the listener, recognizes that you're, you're, you're pushing the boundaries is to produce something that is so we can be better, not because you think what's happening is bad or wrong, but asking people to be in an engaged kind of conversation. And... I can tell you administrators don't have a lot of patience for that. Right? So that's part of the problem is when I'm talking to administrators I what I'll ta- say to them is you need to be willing to listen more and recognize there's value in a conversation that doesn't ha- doesn't end with what are we going to do? Right? And I say to academics you need to be willing to recognize the the nature of the listening of your administrative counterparts and and the concerns that they bring. If you focus around concerns, you can begin to recognize there's there's an overlapping need. But I want to read a very short paragraph here, and I want you to speak about this. It's in, in this article, Promoting Constructive Nonconformity. And, and this will be, it says, few leaders actively encourage deviant behavior in their employees. Most go to great lengths to get rid of it. Yet nonconformity promotes innovation, improves performance, and can enhance a person's standing more than conformity can. And this goes on. But I'm I'm really struck by this idea of – because in my work, there is absolutely – the nonconformity is allowed in people who have a certain kind of power, but if you move through the organization, uh, as we move down, it is discouraged to raise tough issues. And then people say, well, why aren't we having relevant conversations? So when you when you find yourself navigating that conversations, whether it's in the programs you're developing or within the cabinet, what do you find really helps produce the right kind of listening uh, in terms of... Um, offering something up that might be controversial, but you also want to engage them. How, how, say a little bit about where you've had some success in this area.
2: There's not enough time in these settings, like, you know, cabinets or university councils and stuff like that, because there's so many issues. Uh, it's not the right forum. This, this yeah, place is, you know, they're not the right forum for, for these kinds of conversations, which means we need to create a space we need to create a space, another space, That's right. uh, another space, another space for these kinds of conversations, brainstorming sessions, where I, I may, we may call them different kinds of safe spaces in an institution where people can can dream and can reflect and can propose and can enter into conversations and disagreements. And,
1: and make it not like we're doing. This is part of our annual retreat, but this is part of our practice. Right. Absolutely. And and you're bringing you're bringing together folks from different disciplines and background, because that's not what happens. We don't create these. If we create a safe space, we do it for a particular concern or event, and then we get back to our work and it's not part of our culture. So I love your idea. So keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. And this
2: this notion also applies in that you talked about the. People, uh, not in senior management, but maybe in other kinds of other levels of management, or maybe professional staff, whatever. So, but even at those levels, I mean, per, I personally, whenever I meet with people, I challenge them to think differently. Sometimes I use provocative words, like "Why don't you try to be a subversive?" And they get a little shocked by the term. You know, they say, <laughs> "Said what?" Well, because if 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 I want to get something new from a person, some different, like a new idea. Uh, then I will. Ha- I need to provoke them out of their conformity or out of the status quo thinking, if, yes. and and that would be a little jolt to their, uh, you know, to to their systems. But out of that, you get some creative. You do it even when you give writing assignments or, or English composition assignments, or even you know, if you want to get something interesting which we call creative, then you must find, you must be a provocateur. And I, in fact, and in fact, it was the very first essay I wrote when I was a graduate student at Syracuse, when I was taking a, a course on how to be a teacher. And I, I defined the teacher as a provocateur. And I still have that paper. <laughs> so, Beautiful. and the other thing is, if I may relate this to my earlier experiences, where I come from as a faculty member. When I was when I was a graduate student, I was I was tapped. Uh, I was asked to give a lecture to incoming graduate students who are going to be teaching assistants on how to conduct the classroom conversation. So I had a whole bunch of students in the class, brand new teaching assistants. They're all the people they're, they're about my age, and I stood in front of them said, "How do I get them to think about their role as as teachers who can conduct?" a an interesting conversation during the class. And I looked at them and I said, well, if you are not, this is a little provocation. If you if you are not good at being if you're not good at being social beings, or if you're not good social beings, you know how to have conversations with people, other you're not going to be good teachers. And and they were very upset and they they protested. They argued vehemently and and, the, and so for 15 minutes, we didn't know. They never stopped arguing and making a case for themselves. And I said, well, see what well, we had a classroom conversation for 15 minutes.
1: You had no idea. <laughs> and, and you, know, you know, knowing you as well as I do, I think one of the challenges is as you move into uh, a space where it's not about let's explore, but let's solve then the nature of the conversation is different and this this is part of the weakness of senior teams very often is they're too focused on problem solving and they don't make space for exploring what are we trying to do uh or or why are we trying to do it and we go with the leader's well this is what the leader wants to do or the the most uh, uh impactful voice in the room says, this is why we need to do it. And then we, we stop talking. And I think what you're promoting here that everybody in listening to this should be paying attention to is to what extent are you opening conversations for those around you? So you can explore an idea before you jump to what do we want to do? And I think this is a critical missing skill that we want to see in our students, but we don't hold ourselves accountable to be like that. Well,
0: it's a funny thing, right? I mean, is there a fair economy for that sort of leadership introspection, right? When ideas get to the point where, you know, you walk into a boardroom and you have to present an idea, are, are we, Have is there an institution that has embraced this idea where they take it, they take what you have brought them the research and they say, okay, now let's really hash this out. I would say, no, I don't know of an institution that does that really exceptionally well. Well, because of the economy of of introspection is devalued at that level right and
1: also and also the the orientation when you move up the ranks into uh, even you're an academic but at, in an administrative role it 's so oriented around activities, things we have to do, problems we have to solve, putting out fires, and they lose. The the capacity and, and they don't make the time for the, the kind of and, and by the way, that's not true across the board. I'm working with some institutions that are making a deep longstanding commitment to making sure we're having conversations and not just solving problems or solving symptoms. so So I think you're right, Pete. And I think that's that is not the
0: norm and it should be. And part of the challenge is once you are promoted into a position that, you know, of at at a certain rank, the institution has created a culture that devalues those sorts of conversations. And that's the real challenge. You
1: may be exceptional at doing that, but you're not valued for that skill anymore. Well, you know, let's be honest about this. It's the there's a background culture, the institution, but there's also the leaders you have in that moment and and, the, and and when we have a leadership change in president or provost or the deans or or any role that oversees activities and people it opens the door for a new kind of exploration or it closes the door because the last person was not just valued because of that they, they loved what this person brought but they had a capacity to move things in a direction what's fascinating WAR is more and more The nature of the tenure uh, of a a college president is decreasing, and I talk to more and more people. If I ask them, I said, "You'd be a great president." uh, So many of them say, "I'm not sure I want that job because the nature of the job is not what it used to be." Yes, when you speak, you you produce you can tell, and I think we're going to talk more about maybe a, we'll have another session to do this, but this idea of being a provocateur and having the capacity to get people to think more deeply and then other people actually solve the problems, I think that it would be both enlivening to work for you, but also difficult to work for you. Mm-hmm. Because anybody that is thinking like this all the time in, in very much an entrepreneurial mindset is that you know if I get my marching orders, a week later I might discover that you come in the room and say, guess what? I got a different idea. And yeah. people get very attached to their marching orders. And that's part of the limitation that, that people have in in organizations is that they're not comfortable pivoting when you have somebody that brings ideas and wants to shift. So, so this, this is an area where I think this, this, this warrants further exploration for the listener to go back and say, all right, how am I showing up in terms of being uh, a disruptor? And, And, you know, am I willing to speak up in the, in the face of the power in the room? And, and part of this is learning how to speak that others can listen. Not to back off and be nice, you know, being a nice guy doesn't get you very far. What gets you far is being willing to say the tough thing, but articulate why you're saying this and why it's important for us to be uh, moving in that direction and the value that you, and the care that you bring. And if you bring care and you bring the value, you can say almost anything.
2: That's how I conceive of a university or a college, you know, it's a place, it's unlike even though everybody talks about the politics of higher education, administration is nothing but politics. But I kind of refuse to see it that way. I think it's a different kind of institution where people, our main business, we are mostly non organizations, our main business is education. We are, our main, our mission is to educate and enlighten and so on. So uh, when, when interactions within administration are reduced to political squabbles and machinations and and attempts to you know seek advantage here and there and kind of that kind of thing it kind of takes away from the loftiness of what higher education should be about so i think the way and if for if if any if for anything else i like to remind them every now and then my colleagues that we are our business is not selling some uh, some you know uh, goods and services but we are we are educators first and foremost and our mission is to educate and we should exhibit the behavior and the ways of 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 educators to our colleagues and your students and in fact of the entire world
0: this is a, a great message and i hope the start of of uh, many more to come i feel like howard that we have found in anwar a uh, a beacon in our discussions of disruption this year
1: oh yeah this this sets the bar and and, and i and i think this is a conversation that Uh, As we explore this with other practitioners in and out of education, this is a theme that is top of mind for many of us because if we don't produce this wake up, uh, we're not going to produce anything new. Right We're right. just going to sort of blindly continue to go forward and and Anwar, I think you you bring not just the history and the experience, you also bring a, a sense of culture because of your cultural background coming from Morocco you have a you have a broader sense of what culture is. so so let's make sure that we continue this conversation um, and, and maybe have you back to to explore this further after we come to, come around with some others. Right. With pleasure.
0: Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. Head over to Tybalink.com to learn more about our work in education. You can subscribe to the show for free. Just click on the blue button and we'll send you an email each time a new episode is released. If you like what you've heard here today, celebrate the new year by passing it on to a friend or colleague who you think might appreciate a new podcast in their own library. A discussion on disruption to come on behalf of Howard Tybel and Anwar Majid. I'm Pete Wright, and we'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the podcast from Tybal Education.